Now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Michael Ross. Michael Ross is professor of political science at UCLA and director of the Center for Southeast Asian Studies. He has served on advisory boards for the World Bank, the National Intelligence Council, and the Revenue Watch Institute, and has written for Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and Harper's, as well as leading academic journals. His new book is The Oil Curse, How Petroleum Wealth Shapes the Development of Nations. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Michael Ross. Thank you. Thanks. If you're like me, you sometimes go to Target. And there's a funny thing about what you buy there. Every single thing in that entire store, no matter the smallest trinket or the biggest appliance, comes with a tag on it that says where it was made, where it comes from, right? Same is true, in fact, in every store in this country. There's a law that every item that you purchase has to have a country of origin label, so you know where it came from, okay? Kind of makes sense. And yet, if you're also like me and, uh, and drive a car in Los Angeles, you spend a lot of money on gas. And yet you go down to the gas station, you pay 50 or more bucks to fill your tank, and you have no idea where that stuff came from. There's something very odd about the oil industry. It is, by some measures, the world's largest industry, between two and three trillion dollars worth of oil is taken out of the ground each year and, and sold around the world. The largest companies in the world, except for Apple perhaps, um, are by and large oil companies, uh, not just in the United States, in Europe, in, um, in Russia, um, in China. This is this massive, massive industry um, that powers the economies of perhaps three or four dozen countries around the world through exports that we're all dependent on, and yet it's also one of the least transparent industries. Why is that? I think if you start thinking about this when you read the paper in the international section in particular, um, you get some clues. Because you notice that all around the world, many of the most troubled places are oil-producing countries. Iraq, Iran, Syria, an oil exporter. Libya, of course, um, but not just in the Middle East. Um, uh, conflict in Nigeria, Sudan, uh, Angola, Venezuela, long-standing rebellions in Colombia. Um, of course, constant tensions uh, with Russia. Uh, Burma. These are all oil-rich, oil-dependent countries. And the motivation for this book was to try to see if it was just sort of a coincidence that all of this valuable stuff happened to be under the ground of particularly troubled countries, or if there was a reason for it and if we could better understand why, why that seems to uh, uh, happen. So I'm, you know, as you heard, a political scientist and sort of in the modern um, uh, ways of political scientists, I count things and I look at data and I use statistics to try to analyze um, patterns and understand the world a little bit better. Um, sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. The project of this book was to look at 
the last 50 years, since about 1960, look at all countries in the world and try to understand how the oil-producing countries are different and, if possible, what makes them different. Now, the broad patterns um, are these. There are some oil-rich countries that have done well, Canada and Norway, um, but by and large, they have not. If you go back to 1980, before most of you in this room were born, uh, admittedly, um, the oil-producing countries were actually not much different than the rest of the world. Here's the odd thing. Since 1980, the world, and particularly the developing world, is a much, much, much better place. The average income of a developing country has more than doubled since 1980, after inflation. Okay. In 1980, about 30% of the world's countries had democratic governments, Europe, North America, and so forth. Um, today, more than 60% do. Okay? Democracy has spread around the world. If you go back just uh, 20 years, there were um, uh, maybe 60 or 70 countries around the world that had civil wars going on. Today, that number's dropped by about a third, depending on how you count. So actually, much less violence as well. Okay. But that is only true if you look at the countries that don't have oil. If you look at the oil-rich countries, you find a completely different trajectory. Many of them are poor. The average oil-producing country is actually poorer today than it was in 1980. Um, this wave of democracies that has transformed the lives of people in Latin America and many places in Africa and uh, East Asia um, has almost completely left the oil-producing world untouched. Not just in the Middle East, which I'm going to come back to, but the oil-rich countries in Africa, um, in Asia, uh, the countries of Central Asia, Russia. And civil wars seem to take place um, at about the same frequency today that they did 20 years ago in these countries. But because the world's becoming a more peaceful place, a larger fraction of the world's violence is now in, occurring in the oil-rich countries, in the Sudans and uh, Nigerias and, um, uh, and Iraqs and Libyas. Okay. So why is this? What explains why something so um, uh, ostensibly beneficial as oil wealth is bad? Why should good geology lead to bad politics? And this is, of course, a particularly um, salient and interesting question for those of us who live in Los Angeles because we live in an oil-rich area, or at least historically. In the 1930s, Los Angeles produced a quarter of all petroleum in the world. Okay? Um, we were by far the... the uh, we were the Kuwait of uh, the United States of the planet okay, for, for a period of time. And today we like to think about Los Angeles having been built on the boom of Hollywood, but it's really, I think, more accurate to say that it was Hollywood on one side, but also oil on the other side. And a lot of um, Hollywood films in the teens and 20s and 30s were actually funded by oil money. Getty made his fortune. Of course, uh, Doheny, um, who was the, the prototype for the protagonist in um, There Will Be Blood. Um, uh, uh, a whole series of other tycoons, uh, some, of, some of whom we remember, some of whom we don't. Um, so Los Angeles 
is itself an oil-rich place. And we're sitting tonight literally a stone's throw from the La Brea tar pits, which, going back to pre-colonial times, was a source of petroleum for the, uh, for the natives in the region. And the first inkling among the settlers that this might, there might be something um, worth drilling for uh, beneath the soil. Okay. Well, if you, if you read a lot of popular accounts, you come across maybe three different ideas about why oil might be bad, uh, particularly for developing countries. One of them is that it has something to do with these huge multinational oil companies that I mentioned a moment ago. The, um, the BPs and Shells and Chevrons. Companies that, uh, for the most part, by the way, have been around for about a century, right? Um, so these are companies that are not just enormous, but have dominated you know, the global economy for a very long time. And it certainly stands to reason that, um, that the politics of many oil-rich countries are corrupted by the, uh, the power of these companies. But if that were true, then it should be less true today than it was in the 1950s and 60s when these big companies really dominated the globe. Um, and less true after the 1970s when most countries nationalized their oil industries and took control. Many of them, including countries like Libya and Saudi Arabia, actually kicked out um, the foreign companies and took over production themselves. And yet those countries are just as bad off, uh, if not worse off. So I don't think that really gets us very far. Another explanation, uh, you know, just looking at the paper, is that it might have something to do with the fact that the United States and um, other powerful countries are deeply involved in the politics of these oil-rich countries, um, that we have a hand in keeping certain friendly dictators in power, um, occasionally we, uh, we support coups or invasions, and that all of those particular facts are true, of course, there's, there's no getting around it. But again, I don't think that really explains this particular oil curse. Um, you can actually count all the places, all the times that the United States and France and Britain and so forth have intervened in developing countries. And yeah, it's true that we've intervened in many oil-producing countries, but we've intervened in even more non-oil-producing countries, many more resource-poor countries, uh, for whatever other geopolitical reasons. And the interventions don't seem to explain why these countries have, have these problems that they do. Um, and they, 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 they certainly don't explain why countries like Libya until uh, Gaddafi's overthrow um, or Venezuela, countries that sort of actively thumb their nose at U.S. foreign policymakers, um, would be just as troubled as those that are kind of headed by uh, compliant clients of the United States, like, uh, uh, say, in the Middle East. The third explanation, and the one that I try to develop in the book, is that it has something to do with the extraordinary power and the kinds of revenues that oil wealth generates for governments. Okay? I mentioned a moment ago that in the 1970s, 
almost all oil-producing countries nationalized their oil industries. They kicked out the foreign firms. They said, we now are going to claim ownership of all of these wells and all of this production, all these pipelines, this is now ours. We'll pay you a little money. You can still help us operate it, but this is ours. And at the time, you know, big celebrations um, uh, in Mexico, which nationalized, uh, of course, earlier, um, the, uh, the day of nationalization is still a, a national holiday. Okay? Um, you know, extremely popular um, uh, thing. But I think what happened is that the extraordinary, unjust, corrupting power that was held by these huge multinational firms was transferred not to citizens, but to governments. And the incumbent governments in these countries received these enormous windfalls, um, became very big and very wealthy, um, but also very authoritarian, very corrupt, and not very good at providing services and better lives for their citizens. So the unusual qualities of, this, um, of, this, of these revenues, I think, give us um, some insight into this cluster of problems. Okay. Um, it's interesting to note, for example, that Saddam Hussein came to power, rose up from a somewhat obscure bureaucratic position to become president of Iraq because he was in charge of the nationalization process. And this was his gateway to power and fame. Muammar Gaddafi, same story. Um, part of a coup in 1969. But uh, shortly thereafter, one of the first acts was to nationalize the industry, grab all of the power that had unjustly been held by these multinationals, and and use it to establish his own regime. Now, I can imagine that some of you are thinking, um, aha, you know, this is actually, there's a sort of conservative agenda here. You know, big government is bad. Life was better under, in the world in which, you know, corporations sort of ran the show. And I, I actually don't think that's true, and that's not even, you know, my political orientation. Um, uh, I think no one would want to go back to the world of the 1950s or 60s. There was no justice in it. It was unsustainable. Um, people didn't benefit from the riches under their own soil. But nationalization and all of the changes that have happened since then have unfortunately only made things worse. Okay. Let me quickly try to summarize one of the key arguments in the book, which is why oil wealth makes governments different than governments that don't have oil wealth. Okay. Imagine, if you will, for a second, two countries that are identical in most respects, but one of them has lots of oil wealth. Its income comes only from oil. We'll call it petroleum. And the other country only has you know, manufacturing and other kinds of industries. And its wealth, which is otherwise at the same level, um, uh, does not come from oil. We call it industrial. Okay. What do we know just from these basic facts about the governments of these two countries? Well, one thing we know is that the government of Petrolia is much bigger and richer than the government of Industria. Okay. Governments of oil-rich countries 
about twice as large as a fraction of the economy as governments of countries without oil. Now, nothing wrong with this at all. You know, a lot of very successful European governments that are, that are quite large. But then creeps in a second fact, which is that this revenue doesn't come from people's taxes. It doesn't come from going around and collecting tax revenues. It comes instead from something that the government, uh, uh, an activity the government does that has very little to do typically with its citizens. It, it depends on what we call kind of inelegantly in political science, non-tax revenue. Now, why would this matter? The slogan that we are taught in grade school of the American Revolution is no taxation without representation. People in uh, colonial times argued that if they were not represented, they would not pay their taxes. Um, and that, that kind of insight is actually quite powerful and I think true in many ways today. But with a little bit of a twist, when governments depend on taxes, they are forced to become more accountable to their citizens. Okay, nobody really likes paying taxes, and you know, as April 15th uh, approaches, I'm reminded of this rather, uh, in a rather personal way. Um, but if the government is collecting your taxes, you tend to demand more knowledge about where that money is going. You care about what the government does, and you ultimately demand some kind of, uh, some kind of accountability, some level of democratic representation. And this is actually historically how democracy evolved in Europe, um, through kings needing to raise revenues, usually to fight wars, um, and being forced to, um, to agree to the demands of usually the landed gentry, um, the, arist the aristocracy, um, for greater power over um, how that money was spent, and eventually <coughs> leading ultimately to democratic rule. If you've got lots of oil wealth, you are a government that can fund yourself without having to refer at all to uh, what the people do or don't want. Um, one final feature that's especially worrisome, but I, I'll argue in a minute is actually um, a, a bit of good news, is that oil revenues are incredibly opaque. That is, when governments collect money about, uh, from taxes, there, there tends to be a certain amount of public information about how much money they have. And even authoritarian governments are in the habit of writing up an annual budget and submitting that budget to their rubber stamp parliament and people kind of have some idea about what's out there. If you are an oil-rich country, if you are a, you know, a, um, um, uh, a Saudi Arabia or uh, Nigeria or Venezuela, you can run much of your government through your national oil company, um, through secret funds, through off-budget accounts, without having to bother with any of this uh, budget. Under Saddam in, uh, in Iraq, 50% of the government spending didn't come from the budget. It actually came through the national oil company. Um, today in Azerbaijan, 50% of the government's budget 
doesn't come through the budget. It's, it goes through these secret channels and nobody really knows where, where it's going. Um, since Hugo Chavez um, uh, took power, he's gradually moved more and more functions into the hands of the state-owned oil company um, and out of the scrutiny of, of uh, the media and, uh, uh, and the public. Um, and we see this pattern over and over again. It's a big, big, uh, big issue, uh, for example, today in, uh, in Iran. Okay. Well, why should we care about this? What does this tell us about the real world? Does this help us understand something about how the world looks? I think it does cast light on a lot of problems, but I'm going to um, highlight two. Um, and they both have to do with the Middle East. First of all, if we Americans, as Americans, are honest with ourselves, there's a, you know, kind of a sneaking suspicion that the Middle East is different from the rest of the world because it is a Muslim-dominated culture. Okay? Um, and, in fact, there's, you know, some support for this idea that... Um, that uh, Muslim-majority countries tend to be um, less democratic, they tend to have certain kinds of problems. But once you factor in oil, you realize that oil is a huge part of the story. Okay? Um, now, it's not so easy to disentangle the effects of Islamic cultures and traditions from the effects of oil wealth, um, but it is possible to do. Um, you can look around and, and look at um, Muslim countries that don't have oil. You can look at oil-rich countries that are not Islamic. And you find that much of the reason why you don't see democracy in the Middle East, an important reason why women are less frequently in the labor force, uh, why women have less representation in parliament, um, an important reason why you have these recurring violent civil wars, conflicts, um, is because of oil, because of the, typically the effects that oil has on governments and on the economy. Okay, that's one way to think about this that I think uh, uh, gives us some insight. But the second is to look more closely within the Middle East and to compare the countries that have oil to the ones that don't. Okay, the striking facts to me about the Arab Spring are these. First of all, that there were uprisings in almost all countries. Pretty much everywhere, a universal aspiration for freedom and more democratic governance, um, an aspiration that we see everywhere else in the world. In other words, people in the Middle East, regardless of whatever traditions or religion, have the same kinds of aspirations and desires that everybody else does, okay? But the second important fact, I think, is that the governments that had more oil revenues were more successful in putting down these uprisings. There's a reason why we saw a successful uprising in Tunisia, but not in Algeria, okay? Next door, very similar, but lots of oil money. And looking closely at these two cases, I think, can give us a lot of insight. Um, one thing that the Algerian government did when people started to go out in the streets was offer people lots of new subsidies and handouts. Um, the Tunisian government couldn't do this because it didn't have the money. 
The second important thing is that the Algerian government has a much, much, much bigger and better funded military. Okay. Around the world, countries that have oil spend about 50% more on their military than countries without oil. And when push comes to shove, when people are out in the streets, when you have like Tahrir Square in Egypt, when you have um, uh, uh, uprisings, no matter where in the world, in Tehran and so forth, the critical factor, the one thing that determines whether they're gonna, people will be successful or not, is the loyalty of the military. The moment that military officers say, we're not gonna shoot at the people, we stand with the people, we are on their side, is the moment that the government should, the, the, the incumbent government should you know, head for the airports. Okay, that's pretty much, it's pretty much over then. It was true in Tunisia, it was true in Egypt, um, uh, it was true in the former Soviet Union, on, on down the line. But what is the reason why some militaries switch loyalties and others don't? I think a lot of it has to do with money, okay? Um, those military officers who are extremely well paid, who have very large number of troops and lots of, you know, lots of nice toys, um, are much more likely to be loyal when push comes to shove. And even if they're not, even if they're kind of disloyal, you can do what's, what um, Gaddafi did, which is you can hire mercenaries. There's, if you pay enough, if you have enough money, there's always somebody you can hire to fight on your behalf. And were it not for the U.S. intervention, I think, um, it's pretty clear that he would have been successful in putting down this rebellion. So, across the Middle East, um, even before the uprisings, the countries with the greatest openness, the greatest, the most responsive governments, where people had the greatest freedom, there was more newspapers and more competition among parties, were the countries like Lebanon and Morocco and uh, certainly Turkey, if you want to count Turkey, um, uh, Jordan to some extent, countries that didn't have oil wealth. The most repressive countries are the Saudi Arabia, Libya, of course, until uh, recently, Algeria, all of the Gulf states, the countries that are funded by these massive oil revenues that are easily hidden by dictators and transform them into um, highly effective autocrats that are very, very difficult to displace. Okay, well, what can be done? Is this, is this sort of an iron law of, you know, geology, just that, you know, uh, the fate of countries is driven by their, you know, their soil and their, you know, climate and so forth, and there's really not much that can be done? I certainly don't think so. I said at the beginning that there really wasn't such an oil curse, not nearly the way we see it today, before about 1980. Um, and if the oil curse had a beginning, it can also have an end. Okay? It only works under certain conditions. And when those conditions change, it should be possible for oil-rich countries to proceed just as, just as well, just as profitably as any other country. And ultimately, for the people in these countries to, to um, enjoy the, the 
fruits of their own natural resources. It's a particularly important time to think about this, I, I think, because we're at a moment when oil production is moving to maybe as many as two dozen new developing countries. Okay? Um, this, the basic story is this. Over the next 20 years, global demand for petroleum, the, the sort of reasonably happy case, is that demand will increase by about a third. Okay? It's bad news, you think, my God, it, it, there's no reason it has to be that bad, but um, the, the, the figures are difficult to um, manipulate, and um, we're sort of hardwired by our global technology into a lot of future energy demands. So, assuming that's true, production in most of the OPEC countries, most countries in the world, is flat. It hasn't really changed in, uh, in the last 40 years. And so to fill that gap, uh, particularly new demands in China and India, people are turning to countries that are smaller, that are weaker, that are poorer, that previously were kind of off the map. Um, countries like, well, now Sudan, South Sudan are, are producers. Um, Cote d'Ivoire, um, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Cuba is um, slated to be a, uh, an oil exporter in a few years. Um, uh, French Guiana, Cambodia, East Timor is now uh, a big producer. This is also the effect of the, the somewhat infamous uh, Cheney Energy Task Force. You remember early Bush administration, um, uh, 2001, Dick Cheney leads a, the sort of secretive task force that says we need to diversify our sources of energy. We're too dependent on the Middle East, and that's a volatile place. And one of the consequences is that oil companies have been going to a lot of other places and saying, okay, let's find some new oil in, in new places uh, around the world. Well, if you were Dick Cheney and you thought, as, and he's sort of on record as saying this, that it was really just a coincidence that, um, that countries with lots of oil had no democracy and, and lots of civil war and lots of you know, poverty and instability, then sure, let's go find some better places to take oil out of. But if you think that my story is right, and you know, I, I uh, don't want to claim too much credit, there are a lot of people who are working on this and, and um, uh, who think as, as I do on this. Um, if this story is right, what it means is that you move to new countries and you're going to bring an oil curse with you. And in the most, um, the most worrisome scenarios, you're talking about countries that are very poor, that don't actually have that much oil and that will exploit it for maybe 10 years or 20 years and then it's going to be gone. Okay? So this, these countries, the Cubas and, and you know, Liberias and Mauritanias and so forth, uh, Mozambique now, you know, suddenly people are excited about Mozambique, um, they have a one-time opportunity to break out of their poverty and make a real leap ahead um, economically and in, in social development, but it's not going to happen if they fall prey to this oil curse. 
Okay, so um, are there practical things that can be done? Yes, yeah, many more things in the book. I argue that there's no one-size-fits-all uh, solution, but let me mention two ideas that I think are, are uh, important and worth thinking about. One is that you can give the money away. There's nothing you know, written in the stars that says um, that oil revenues have to be handed to governments to decide what they should do. Okay? A government that is you know, well-run and accountable, great, you know, build all kinds of great things. But a government that is not very accountable and not well-run, if you pump huge amounts of money into it, you can imagine what's going to happen. But there is an alternative, which is that you can give everybody a share, all your citizens, an annual check, a dividend. Okay? It's not such a crazy idea because this is what they do in Alaska. Okay? There's uh, been, since the 1970s, a fund that's kind of independent, independently run, independently managed, well-managed, good return on their investments. They get more money each year. Every citizen in Alaska gets a check, depending on the, on the return each year, of, say, about $1,000, sometimes $2,000. Okay? It's a lot of money. It also means that the government has much less money to play around with, uh, much less is going to go missing in you know, Swiss bank accounts and uh, uh, you know, Malibu mansions. Um, and that people are going to start paying a lot more attention to how much money there is in this business and not let the government get away with uh, uh, what it uh, has, has done in the past. Now, you might say, sure, that works in Alaska, but why would you know, dictator X in country Y implement a policy that is so counter to his or her interests that, you know, kind of bleeds them and deprives them of, you know, the, the stuff that they probably got into politics for in the first place. I think we often see in politics that there are moments of opportunity, windows where it's possible to put reforms in place. Okay. Um, we've probably seen those. I mean, the, uh, very nice book a few years ago by uh, the, this you know, great uh, journalist and thinker, James Fallows, who argued that after 9-11 in the U.S., we had a real window of opportunity to make real changes in this country, um, an opportunity that was, um, you know, in, in my view, squandered, not taken advantage of, and instead we go to war. Um, but other countries have these moments of opportunity, and it's not uncommon, it's not infrequent that when there's this sort of new discovery and all this news and all this excitement, there is a moment of opportunity where people don't really know what to do. And if they can think about their options, if they can pay more attention to where things have gone wrong, the Nigerias and the Iraqs, um, and think about what can be done, that can be done right, um, they might be able to put in place reforms that will stand the test of time. So I think, I think it's, it's an idea, it's not gonna fix everything, but, um, but it could help a lot, and it could be useful in some of these, um, some of these new producers. But the second thing is transparency. Oil has a lot of its kind of 
pathology-inducing, corruption-inducing, democracy-denying powers because it is such a secretive industry. Okay? If people knew in you know, any given oil-rich country exactly how much money was collected by their governments and how much was being squandered and sent off and spent on arms, they would be outraged. The only reason why people sort of are willing to go along with it is they don't really know. Okay? It's this, as I said at the beginning, um, this extraordinarily secretive industry. And there are ways to make a difference and to bring transparency to the industry and ways that actually other countries and consumers can also make a difference. Okay? Now, I'm not going to uh, ask you to pledge to all buy Priuses and electric cars. Okay? Um, that would be nice, but that's not, uh, we don't even have to go there. In the Dodd-Frank bill, the financial reform bill that uh, passed in 2010, there was a somewhat obscure provision, 1504, that stipulated, that, that some, uh, some wonderful nonprofits managed to slip in the bill that said, if you're a US-based company, you've got to publicly disclose how much money you're paying to foreign governments for, to buy oil and minerals and stuff like this. Okay? Amazingly enough, they don't have to do this. Okay? These publicly listed companies, you know, the, the Exxons and you know, Chevrons and so forth, um, can you know, issue their financial reports and you know, reams and reams of paper, but they don't have to tell you how much money they gave to the Angolan government last year uh, and what it was for. Um, and hence, the Angolan government can keep this a secret too because nobody else outside is disclosing this. Why should they disclose it to their own people? So you would think this would be a big step forward and it has been a big step forward but with one big caveat which is that um, in order for any law to um, be, you know, uh, to begin sort of being enacted, you need to have somebody in the government write the rules and kind of specify exactly how it's supposed to be implemented and who's supposed to do what. And this provision, sec uh, section 1504, was uh, sent to the uh, SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was supposed to write up the rules, supposed to issue the rules sometime last year. The oil companies are threatening to sue the SEC if it goes ahead and issues these rules, even though you know, the law has been passed and they are supposed to, by law, issue these rules, okay? Oil companies are threatening to sue. They've done everything they can to block the uh, issuance of these rules because they know what's going to happen uh, if, uh, if they are uh, disclosed. Um, now, you might, of course, naturally think, well, yeah, okay, it's nice if the U.S. does it. Granted, the U.S. is still the world's biggest oil importer, don't believe what you hear about, you know, we're now, you know, exporting gas to the world. We're still the world's largest importer of petroleum. Um, but what about other countries? It so happens that in Europe, a similar proposal is under consideration uh, in the European Commission and the European Parliament, and there's actually good, a very good chance that it will be adopted. And so if you've got the companies in these two regions of the world, you've already gone a good way towards um, forcing much of the industry to start being more transparent. Now, it's not a perfect solution, it's not gonna solve everything, but 
it's the first step. And um, as I argue in the book, it, we are confronted with an industry that affects all of our lives in Los Angeles more than probably any other place in the country. Um, yet we don't know where our money goes. We know where our money goes when we buy you know, a television or a candy bar. Okay? We don't know where it goes when it buys gasoline. If you follow the logic through and look closely at the money trail, you find that a lot of it goes to some very bad places. A lot of dictators that are repressing their people, um, that are sending off large parts of it to, um, you know, to fund mansions, uh, just stories in the paper about um, uh, Gaddafi's son's mansion in London and the fight over that going on now. Um, we have a right to know where our money goes and we have an opportunity to force these remarkable but opaque companies to be more transparent. And if we can do so, I think we can give the people of these oil-producing countries a rare and critical opportunity to use their natural resources for their own national interest, um, which is not what's being done today. Why don't I stop there, and uh, maybe we can have some questions and some comments. I'd like to ask a question about the, 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 the idea of an oil curse. And I wonder if um, it's a, what we're talking about is actually more of a business model that's created by a concert of minds and then implemented through legislation and policy. Is it possible to actually see it as less of a um, mystery and, and more of a, uh, an implementation from you know, an international implementation? Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I'm asking? Um, let, me, let me try to rephrase it and see if I'm getting what you're, what you're, um, what you're thinking about. When you use the word curse, it, it creates this sort of uh, almost supernatural aura. Um, and that also carries the implication that it's sort of beyond our power to really do anything about. Um, and maybe that's not really a, um, the most helpful way to think about that. Is that would that be a fair... Yeah, I was in that direction, assuming that, that you have, have the ability to, to, to comment on that. I yeah. read your chapter. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a fair point. It's, it's very funny. It's how a phrase gets um, lodged in the public mind. I, I first came across this phrase, resource curse, I think around 1999, and it had been going used... Um, uh, since the early 90s. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, that is going to take off. That is such a, you know, a snappy little idea. It somehow encapsulates this uh, problem. And so um, I, I'm very much guilty of sort of taking advantage of a, uh, of a phrase that gets people's attention and gets them interested. I think it's also kind of interesting, you know, and this is completely uh, um, tangential, that we have, and so many cultures have, myths about King Midas's, about the ill fortunes that beset people who get easy riches. The idea, the story that the lottery winner today is the person who lives in a trailer park tomorrow. Okay? So it kind of fits with a narrative that we, we uh, already have in our you know, repertoire. And um, that might also be why it, why it carries a certain cachet. But I, I, I take your point as uh, uh, um, not wanting to give it too much, too much authority. 
First, I want to say this provision in the Dodd-Frank bill is really great, but it won't help in joint ventures like in Nigeria and Angola where the national company doesn't get money, it gets actually half the oil. And then they sell it directly so it doesn't show. But my, real qu but my serious question is how, uh, you blame the, you put the problem on that the governments aren't being good to their people. How much of the problem uh, is really the Dutch disease? The Dutch disease, as you know, is this economic phenomenon um, that's a, a little bit um, uh, kind of esoteric. But the basic idea is you have a lot of oil and it messes up your economy in a way such that it's very hard to profitably export other kinds of things. You become more and more dependent on oil. I do think the Dutch disease is a problem, but um, it wouldn't be a problem if oil was a completely benign basis for your economy. Um, if you, you know, if, if oil made everybody you know, happy and well-off and well-educated and so forth, nothing wrong with having the Dutch disease. Um, the Dutch disease only worries us because oil-rich countries tend to have this cluster of problems. So I do make, make a more um, uh, you know, kind of extensive and, and you know, perhaps uh, uh, too detailed for right now argument in the book about how um, certain problems in the oil curves really are linked directly to the Dutch disease, and, and, that, and that's a concern. But for the most part, I kind of want to get away from this idea that it's just this sort of automatic economic phenomenon and focus on the politics. One other point about the uh, joint ventures, it's a very good point. Um, you know, this trans the, the, the movement that brought about this um, provision in the Dodd-Frank bill is part of this transparency movement that's been around for about 10 years and there's this wonderful, amazing network of nonprofits um, around the world, probably centered in London, um, that have been pushing transparency measures. And it's, you know, it's a whack-a-mole game. It's, you know, you shine the light on, you know, as many places as you can and then bad things happen in some other places. Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try and do your best, um, but it's, it's, it's a never-ending chase. Um, I think a lot of progress has been made, though. What happened in Norway, and did they avoid any of this? I mean, we don't really hear much bad stuff happening there. Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, I think the, the pattern that we see is when countries are already well-governed and already democratic, um, that there's nothing about having oil that's going to make life worse. It's more of a problem if you are a low or middle income country and you don't have a government that is A, both um, kind of held accountable to the people. There aren't sort of good checks and balances in place to make sure that the money is well spent. And B, you don't have a government that has the, the bureaucratic capacity to manage these huge flows of money. Um, you know, the, the um, uh, you know, I was in Azerbaijan a couple of years ago and, um, you know, just a great example of it, you know, so underwent this unbelievable boom in oil and gas production in the, um, uh, about five years ago. And the size of government, the amount of money spent by the government increased eightfold in a period of about uh, five years, okay. 
before this boom, they were building one or two hospitals a year. They get all this money, they decide, you know, look, why don't we build five or ten hospitals a year? Now, that, that, uh, uh, the third hospital they built, they can you know, do a reasonably good job building two hospitals, say, but when they build that third hospital um, and they're trying to spend that money, it's probably, they're probably not going to get their best engineers. Um, there'll be a materials shortfall. Um, the bureaucracy, who people who are responsible for auditing and monitoring the project are going to be stretched thin. They're not going to be able to watch what's going on. The fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth hospitals, um, the quality is just going to go down further and further. Okay? There's only so much money you can spend at any given time in a productive way. Um, and governments that are sort of uh, um, kind of highly capable in a technocratic sense um, are much better at managing these flows and not overspending, putting money in the bank, um, than governments that don't have that kind of experience. In your opinion, did oil have anything to do with our decision to get involved with Libya, but staying uh, not to get involved with Syria? And number two, what, if anything, can President Obama do to control the price of gasoline in the United States? I know he's taking a lot of flack about that. In my view, it's, it's you know, I, I, I'm pretty convinced that Libya's oil was a big reason that the United States and, um, and NATO allies went in. Um, it's hard to be, you know, perfectly sure, but uh, Libya was a, a place that was seen as much more valuable and worth spending money and lives on, I think, because people realize, you know, there is this prize there. And if uh, Gaddafi's overthrown, you know, there's going to be all kinds of, uh, you know, greater access to this oil. So I, th I think it made a difference. I'm kind of more confident it made a difference in Iraq. Um, Libya may be a little bit less clear. I think it's probably the case that, um, that oil mattered in a different way in Libya, which is that if it didn't have oil, Gaddafi would have been overthrown rather quickly and easily, given how unpopular he was um, uh, in the country. And we wouldn't have had to go in, we didn't have to go in, but you know, there wouldn't have been calls for intervention because it would have looked much more like Tunisia um, next door. Can Obama do much about gas prices? Um, I mean, very interesting discussions on this in the um, um, uh, in sort of in the blogs and in the in the the trade press. And to broaden it out even a little bit, if you think strategically about decisions in the White House for the um, uh, for the November election, there's a trade-off between having really successful sanctions on Iran. Uh, which, of course, you know, is, has been a, a goal for Obama. But on the other hand, having gas prices go up too much as a response. One reason gas prices have been going up is because the sanctions have been much more effective than anybody anticipated. I mean, they really have um, reduced the exports of one of the world's largest exporters. Um, Iran has, I think, the world's second largest reserves exporting something like uh, two million barrels a day, I mean, quite a bit. So there's a trade-off there, and um, it can't be very easy to think about how to, how to balance that. Um, I don't think, in general, that, uh, that Obama has much 
leverage over gas prices. There's some dispute about whether releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, this you know, huge amount of oil that we keep for emergencies, whether that really has much effect on prices. Some people say yes, some people say no. Even the people who say yes think it's pretty small and pretty temporary. What role are the Chinese playing in the, in the international search for oil and the oil curse? China is the big new player, not just in that demand has been rising exponentially and will continue to rise, but in that it has been the home of um, a handful of giant new oil companies, um, new on the international scene, that are very aggressive in going into countries that, like Sudan, Western companies were much shyer about, much, much uh, more reluctant to, uh, to venture into. And so they, they're, you know, the game is being changed um, on that side, just as all of these other measures are being assembled on, on, um, uh, on a different side. Um, that said, I, I, don't think, I don't think China is uh, hopeless. Um, I, I think people there uh, in the companies, in the government, in the, in the public, are increasingly caring about some of the same things um, that people are in, in Western con countries. Um, I think they're coming to the recognition that to have a stable supply, um, you don't want to just cut a deal with the person at the top. Um, you want to have a government that is well-functioning and liked by the people. Um, uh, they've kind of tentatively they haven't signed on, but they haven't rejected some of the international initiatives to promote transparency. So I, uh, I, th I think that's going to be kind of the frontier, one of the frontiers in this uh, movement to improve transparency and governance. Um, but a very tough issue. W one final point, which is that um, from reading the papers, you might get the wrong impression that really China is the big player in the international scene, and we're kind of powerless to do anything about it. Um, and in fact, the U.S. imports twice as much as the world's next largest importer um, uh, in, the, in the petroleum world. We are still the giant in the field. And the fact that we are going to lose that status means that we are at the moment when we have the most influence right now. And if we don't act now, we're going to lose that opportunity. South Sudan is one of the world's newest nations. Uh, what sort of accomplishments could you uh, look forward to from them for their window of opportunity, or do you see their window as rapidly um, snapping shut? Imagine the country with the worst possible preconditions <laughs> for, you know, for the lives of its people. It would be South Sudan. Um, not just the fact that it's poor, uh, not just the fact that it has a lot of oil wealth, but um, the fact that it's otherwise landlocked, which means it doesn't have a lot of other opportunities that you have when you uh, have access to ports and trade. Um, uh, the fact that it is in its first few years of sovereignty and, um, and one thing we see around the world is soon after countries become independent, they are at the greatest risk of having a civil war because they haven't worked out who's going to be in charge and how they're going to share power, and it's quite often settled at the point of a gun. Um, and they, of course, have this, you know, this very difficult protracted dispute with Sudan around the uh, pipeline. So um, there are people who I'm, you know, um, 
who I speak to and know of, you know, they're uh, uh, um, public service organizations, governments that are kind of reaching out to them and trying to pass along ideas about what they might do. But they are, they are sort of so far from even having a workable functioning government and establishing kind of some kind of civil order that um, the question of what they're going to do with their oil money is probably you know, a few steps down the road. Um, that said, I really do think that there are opportunities that there's, there's no ironclad reason why the past has to be like the future. And um, uh, while we're focused on South Sudan today, um, in a year or two, it's going to be other countries, like I mentioned, Mozambique and Sierra Leone and Mauritania, uh, facing the exact same problem. So we really should be thinking systematically about what we can do to help all of these countries together. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.